According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews 10. I've been dying to get back into this book. Only missed one Sunday with the Ukraine trip, but it seems like longer. (coughs) But here we are. Hebrews chapter 10. And really, we're going to uh, be looking at verses 14 and following. We can uh, pick up our context in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And this is what an Old Testament priesthood was accustomed to doing and what they were still doing at the point that the author of Hebrews is writing the book of Hebrews. That the temple of Solomon was still uh, in Jerusalem, not yet destroyed. That the priests continue to stand and daily ministering. And they're offering these same uh, sacrifices over and over and over again, but they are not perfect sacrifices because they don't take away sin. In fact, they just serve as reminders year after year. They're reminders of sin. But Jesus, in verse 12, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When did a Levitical priest sit down? Never. The whole time. There were no seats in the tabernacle. The only seat was the mercy seat, right? There there were no seats in the courtyard, in in the holy place, in the holy of holies. And they would walk in and they would sacrifice, they would stand, they would minister, and then they would come back through the veil and return out of the tabernacle. Not so with Jesus. Jesus entered within the veil, he ascended to the Father's right hand, he is seated at the Father's right hand, and he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. That's our blessing in the church age that an Old Testament priest could never even dream of. So he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And this is, uh, of course, Psalm 110 that's being quoted. It's being quoted uh, repeatedly through the book of Hebrews. We have it again and again. All right, so he is seated and he is waiting. The church age is an age of waiting. And when we were here two weeks ago, we were looking at this. I didn't... uh, Got to fast forward here to my slide. Probably this one. Those guys are standing, but he sat down. The present time is a time of waiting. The bride is waiting for the rapture, whereas the groom and the bride, we are waiting for the Father's fashioned footstool. That God the Father is fashioning a footstool. That the enemies of Jesus are being made a footstool. When he comes and he reigns in the millennium, When he comes and he conquers at at Armageddon, he will be reigning over a conquered land. The uh, occupational forces of Jesus Christ for a thousand years are going to rule with a rod of iron. The millennium is not a pleasant rule, not like the new heavens and new earth, not like the fullness of time after the millennium. The millennium is actually an occupational army with a rod of iron, and there will be rebellion throughout those thousand years. In, uh, in a very difficult thing. And so uh, that's what we were looking at uh, a 
couple weeks ago, the last time we were here. Let's open with a word of prayer and ask our Father to bless our time of study and to take us into uh, these following verses. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for the ministry that you have provided, rejoicing, Father, in our position as New Testament believers, as church-age saints, as Melchizedek priests in a priesthood that is uh, so wonderful, Father. We thank you for the book of Hebrews that outlines for us and describes for us the access that we have. We can come before you at a moment's notice. We can come before you today, right here, right now. And we can come before you as many times as we want. Uh, Every day we want. And uh, Father, on this day, we're coming before your throne and asking for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you for the church age that provides for born-again believers to study in such a way No other age of human history was the the Holy Spirit given on a universal basis with a permanent indwelling for the teaching of the Word of God. What a joy. So Father, might we be humble, might we be diligent, might we study to show ourselves approved on this day. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we move on into verse 14, we have perfection And this is described as a completed action. And so I realize that on an experiential basis, many of us go through many days of our earthly sojourn, and there are, uh, quite frequently, there are occasions where we don't feel very perfect. We have occasions where we're not feeling the perfection, but it's there. The perfection is a work of God, and it is completed at the cross. And we have perfection in Christ. And having been perfected positionally, we then spend the rest of our Christian lives being perfected experientially through the Word of God. As as the Word of God shapes our thinking and transforms our being and prepares us for the glory that is yet to be revealed. So in verse 14 of Hebrews 10 it says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, the saints, if you will, those who are sanctified. And this is a verse that takes a little bit of work, and I don't mind taking some time to explain this, because it's a fundamental question of Scripture that I think a lot of people get wrong. And so we want to get it right and not be confused over things. In fact, the language is particularly generic. Is particularly vague so that we can make the multiple applications the way that we need to make those multiple applications. Because when we talk about being set apart, being sanctified, that centers on what God's purpose is for setting us apart. God is the one who does the sanctifying. God is the one who sets apart. And at different times and different places, God has set apart different people for different reasons. In this uh, If you don't rightly divide the word of truth, you can uh, be confused with this. And we're going to try to sort it out for you here today. All right, so we have one offering. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It was a once and for all event. 
And that's critical. I think that answers a lot of issues that we struggle with in our culture that tries to promote pluralism, that tries to promote there are many paths to glory, there's many truths, there's many, they, they promote a pluralistic worldview that is satanic, it is unbiblical. And so we have to stop and, and back up and, and take things in the appropriate application. You understand that we became sinners because of one thing. One act of disobedience caused us all to become sinners. Therefore, theologically, logically, in every other way, therefore, it was one act of disobedience that made us sinners. What's it going to take to make us saints? To make us righteous? It can't be multiple repeated acts. It's one event that, that condemned the human race, it's one event called the cross that redeems the human race. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He is the last Adam. That he came to faithfully accomplish the will of God even as Adam was in rebellion against the will of God. And so really the whole story of the Bible from you've got the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis 1 and 2 and you have the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22 and everything else in between are the details, right? To get us from paradise lost to paradise restored. And it takes the plan of God in Jesus' work on the cross to take humanity to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. After all, that is what we're looking for. You and I are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And uh, so this becomes important. Hold your finger here in Hebrews 10 and let's just remind ourselves of the theology that Paul delivers in Romans chapter 5. Because I don't know that we can get any clearer than this. This is a pretty straightforward text to outline the positional truth of what it means to be in Adam versus what it means to be in Christ. That it's a lost estate for all of Adamic humanity. And so in Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. God did not just condemn Adam the person. God condemned Adam the heritage. Adam the estate. Adam, the race of, of creation. And this is, this is significant because this follows Satan and his fall. The angels were already in rebellion before this even happened. That Satan sinned. Satan sinned before Adam sinned. And a third of the angels went with him. And we have a fallen uh, cosmos with Satan and his rebellion. But, it, but sin as an estate did not come into the world until Adam sinned. All right, that becomes important. And theologically, it's stressed this way in Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered in the world, and death through sin. And so the, the estate of sin and death is purely Adamic, not satanic. Satan sinned, but Satan never procreated. Satan, all the other fallen angels are not descendants of Satan. 
Every fallen angel that fell, fell in their own volition, in their own sin, in their own rebellion. The angels are not procreative amongst themselves, uh, I think, because there's no girl angels, that's a big thing. All right. But then also, it's humanity that was designed in the image of God. It's humanity that's designed. Male and female, he created them. Humanity is uh, under the expectation of being fruitful and multiplying. No angel is commanded to be fruitful and multiply. In fact, I believe Genesis 6 was a rebellion against the plan of God when fallen angels procreated with human women and created the, the Nephilim hybrids that they did. All right, so we have through one man. Let me go on here in Romans 5. So through one man, sin, that's the estate of sin. Not sins plural, but sin singular. The estate of sin entered into the world and death through sin. The spiritual death of the human race separated from fellowship with God the Father is a consequence of Adam's original sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. We were all in Adam when Adam sinned. Okay? And I won't turn there, but you can turn there this afternoon or go look it up if you think I'm lying. When Eve ate first, but her eyes weren't opened until Adam ate. When Adam ate, then it says the eyes of both of them were opened. Adam is the federal head. Adam is the accountable leader. And, uh, and that's for our blessing. That's for the design of the human race. That's not uh, you know something for uh, feminists to be all mad about or whatever, that that Eve, even though she sinned first, she was not spiritually dead until Adam sinned. And then she died spiritually in Adam because of Adam's sin, not because of her sin. By the way, you and I are not sent to hell because of our own sin. We're born in Adam, and that's the wages of sin, singular, is spiritual death, not our personal sins of all the things that we've ever done that uh, fall short of the glory of God. All right. Nevertheless, verse 14, death starts to reign. But now look at the free gift, verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, see this is the doctrine of original sin, and people that deny original sin, I don't know what they do with this verse, or what they do with this chapter, because it's the transgression and it's the free gift. One and only in both cases. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. If, if, if you have a gospel that's other than the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've got a false gospel. The only hope this fallen world has is eternal life by faith in Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. That's the only way. And all that I realize our generation doesn't like this and they have this thing about pluralism, this thing, this cult, the multiculturalism cult, the multiculties that some people call them, right? It's just, uh, it's hideous that, that thinks that there's other ways and it's blasphemous because God gave His Son because there was no other way. And so there's the gift, the one man. 
And so in verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. On the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. All right. And so we have this. Uh, It gets repeated in different ways. Verse 17, If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We get to become overcomers in Jesus. We have the victory of this life in Christ. What a joy. Verse 18, Through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. It's a universal provision. Again, I don't know how you can read this passage and come away with limited atonement. It's an unlimited atonement. All of Adamic humanity is condemned in Adam, and so salvation is offered to whosoever will. Whosoever will. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. That's uh, That's the provision. And so if you're given the gospel to somebody who thinks, oh, well, I can't possibly be saved. I've done too many sins. Just let them know that's irrelevant. God doesn't care how many sins you've done. They were all nailed to Christ anyway. And you're not going to hell for all those sins you did anyway. It's the sin of Adam imputed to our account. It's the Adamic original sin that gives us our lost estate, the, the spiritual death of being in Adam. And so these, uh, these principles become uh, important as well. More to, more to say on this in our soteriology class at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Alright. So verse 19 of Romans 5, through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And so here's what we, what we have in Hebrews 10. You have the, the the priesthood of the Old Testament, these Levitical priests, and they're doing a multiplication of sacrifices. Sin offerings, guilt offerings, trespass offerings, peace offerings, all these offerings, red heifer offerings, all these things. Scapegoats, I mean everything. And sacrifices over and over and over again. Jesus comes one sacrifice for all time to perfect us. To perfect us. All right. You can rescue your finger then and get back here to Hebrews chapter 10. Being perfected. Now, those who are sanctified, those who are set apart, we really have a marvelous way here to to teach two things at once. To teach Old Testament sanctification and New Testament sanctification. To teach Israel's set-apart status and to teach the church's set-apart status. Because really, we're all saints in Christ. Uh, every church-age believer priest is a set-apart one. We are sanctified by the blood of Christ. We are saints, even if the Roman church doesn't call us that. We, even if we don't have a feast day on the calendar that's the feast of St. Bob, we are saints in Christ Jesus, set apart by God for His holy calling in the heavenly places. And big difference, of course, between um, Old Testament sanctification, New Testament sanctification, Israel was set apart as an earthly people in the midst of other earthly peoples. We are set apart as a heavenly people from all the nations of the earth. All right. And so really we want to remind ourselves, as this verse points to, 
uh, the blood of Christ sanctifies and perfects different objects in different ways and at different times. Different objects in different ways at different times. And this ought to be simple. I don't know why people make it so complicated. But there are different people. Israel is an earthly people. The church is a heavenly people. Israel has not yet been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. Because Israel as a nation has not accepted the Christ. Israel as a nation were the folks that crucified the Christ. And to this day, Israel as the covenant nation remains in unbelief. They remain in hardness of heart other than a partial remnant that remains of which uh, the born-again believers uh, are no longer Israel. The born-again believers are ushered into the body of Christ with, uh, with the Gentiles that are then one new man in Christ. But a day is coming when Jesus returns and conquers at Armageddon, he will gather every Jewish person from around the globe, from the four corners of the earth, he will send out his angels to gather every Jewish person on the planet, and he will bring them into the wilderness of Israel, and he will enter into judgment with them. The unbelievers will be removed. The believers will be provided the Holy Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, and ushered into the new covenant. And that's how the millennial kingdom will will begin. All right, so different objects in different times. God's set-apart earthly people are perfected in the new covenant of the millennial kingdom. God's set-apart earthly people are perfected in the new covenant of the millennial kingdom. And if we can keep these things distinct, I think we do ourselves a big favor. Some people read the word saints, and then they just kind of lump everything together and say, well, saints are saints, and it's all the same. And they, when they talk about the saints, and then they see how Antichrist in the tribulation is going to be persecuting the saints, then they get scared. And then they go, ooh, we're saints, we must go through the tribulation, right? And what they've done is a category error, logically. What, th- what they've done is they've taken a term saints that can apply in a variety of contexts, and they've just lumped them all together into a, into a single application, and that's just not biblical, not even logical, all right? So there is a set-apart earthly people called the Jews, and this is pretty easy to, uh, to prove um, if you have a, plain, a literal hermeneutic and a plain approach to the Scriptures. If the plain sense makes sense, you don't look, go looking for any other sense. And really, in the Old Testament, you can read 39 books of the Old Testament and walk away and think there's no mystery here. Uh, the Jews are the chosen people. Okay? Israel is the set-apart nation in the midst of all the Gentile nations of the earth. It's only bad theology from the New Testament that uh, takes the church and tries to replace Israel and say, well, they blew it, it's our turn now, and we're replacing, we're receiving every promise they were ever given. That's impossible. Because God didn't promise us those things, He promised them those things. And I'll have more to say on this because there's us versus them language right here in our passage today. But Numbers 23.9, what does it say? I'm glad you asked. 
In um, Numbers 23, you have Balak, uh, the king, and uh, he's hiring Balaam, the prophet, Gentile prophet, and he's hiring him to curse Israel. And Balaam, uh, first, uh, first of all, Balak tries to hire him, and Balaam says, I can't do that. But then he, he increases the fee, and that was too much for greedy uh, Balaam, and he goes for it. He was the for-profit prophet that uh, couldn't turn away from the, the money. But in this prophecy, uh, he says in verse 7, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the rocks, as I look on him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart. They are a sanctified nation. They are different from every other people on the planet. A people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And that's what came out of his mouth. That's what the Holy Spirit inspired. It uh, upset Balak quite a bit. (laughs) The king said, look, I didn't pay you for that. I didn't pay you. (laughs) What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. Yes, and that's the point whom God has blessed. So they are a set-apart people. So much so that there's a term. You have Jew and you have Gentile. And you know what a Gentile is? Everything else. That's right. Americans, French, Russians, Ukrainians, Filipinos. I mean, you can, you can just keep naming people groups until the cows come home. Every people group except the Jews. So you have Israel, and you have Gentiles. Everything else. So that kind of encompasses everybody, right? If you have A and not A, what's left? Well, until God performs a miracle, there's nothing left. But in the church age, God creates a whole new thing. And there is a new creation that is neither A nor not A. We have Israel, we have the Gentiles, and we have the church, which is neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man in Christ. And so we have a a tremendous mystery when it comes to that. All right. And so that's Numbers 23, 19. How about Deuteronomy 7, 6? For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. For the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, uh, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. In other words, he doesn't pick them because he couldn't help himself and they were so wonderful and great. Uh, He picked them out. He chooses the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. He chooses the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are, but they're a chosen people. Now we also are a chosen people, but we are a chosen heavenly people. That's a big difference. 
Psalm 16 and verse 3. Are you convinced yet? Say, yeah, you sold me in the Numbers passage. I didn't need Deuteronomy. I don't need Psalms. It's kind of overkill. Psalm 16, 3. As for the saints who are in the, the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. You know, there's no other nation on this earth in the history of mankind that has the promises that Israel has. If the United States of America is destroyed tomorrow, we do not have a covenant promise that he will restore us ever. But Israel will be restored. Indeed, they were restored in 1948. And that's... Uh, testimony to God's faithfulness. Psalm 34 9 O fear the Lord you his saints for to those who fear him there is no want the young lions do lack and suffer hunger but they who seek the Lord shall not be in in want of any good thing. What a promise. And then several verses in Daniel chapter 7 why do I bring this up? Because I think it's vital in our eschatological studies. Studying prophecy, studying the kingdom to come. Studying that it's Israel's kingdom, not our kingdom. Now we're married to the king, so clearly we have a role. But we're not citizens, we are the bride of the king. Alright, Daniel 7. And uh, there's a vision, there's four beasts, there's a lot here in this chapter, but let me just pick up with verse 18. It says, The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's Daniel 7, verse 18. The saints of the highest one. Those are the Jews. They're not the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. They're going to come and go. These mighty empires will rise and fall. But Israel stands forever. And it's the saints of the highest one that are spotlighted there in verse 18. The saints are also spotlighted in verse 21 because this is whom Antichrist is going to try to exterminate. I kept looking. That horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. You thought the Holocaust was ferocious? You thought that the Nazi attempt to exterminate the Jewish people was, it was horrible. I'm not going to minimize it. But when I compare it to the tribulation, you have to minimize it. The tribulation is unlike anything that has ever preceded it. And, and nothing else will ever follow. Not like that. Waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. And so we have this. This is the imagery, right? This is, this is where, you know, when the saints go marching in, kind of a thing. It's a fun song and whatever, but dispensationally it applies to Israel marching up that holy highway from the wilderness into Jerusalem entering into their kingdom. Verse 25 and verse 27. 
Antichrist will speak out against the Most High and will wear down the saints of the Highest One and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Verse 27, The sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Highest One. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey Him. Every Gentile dominion will be in subjection, a client nation in subjection under Israel. The throne of David with Jesus Christ on the throne. That's what they have to look forward to. Us, on the other hand, we are God's set-apart heavenly people. God's set-apart heavenly people. And our perfection does not come through the new covenant, which is a good thing because the new covenant is not here yet. Our perfection does not come through the millennial kingdom, which is a good thing because the millennial kingdom is not here yet. Our perfection comes through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ and our priesthood in Christ. God set apart heavenly people are perfected in the Melchizedek priesthood of the church. We are the set apart heavenly people. This also is fairly easy to prove, biblically speaking. Titus 2.14 Verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the happy hope, the makarios elpis, the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So we're looking forward to the rapture, and then seven years or more after that, we're looking forward to the second advent who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So we are a heavenly people. We are a set-apart people. Just we're not Israel. We're something new. The new creation of the church age. So we can read a passage like this, and we can relax about it. We can say, okay, yes, that to purify for himself a people. That's not that we're replacing the other people. It's not that we're replacing those. He still has set Israel apart. He will resume his program for them once he's done with us. All right, it's just uh, it's poor theology and, and poor logic that demands that they get replaced. How about 1 Peter 2.9? I think this one gets misunderstood. Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter. Because people read about this and say, well, look at that, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Well, that's got to be talking about Israel. Wasn't Israel a chosen race? Yes, they were. Wasn't Israel a royal priesthood? Actually, no, they were not. How could you be a royal priesthood when royalty belongs to the tribe of Judah and priesthood belongs to the tribe of Levi? That makes it kind of tough to be a royal priesthood 
in an Old Testament frame of reference. But in a church frame of reference, it makes perfect sense. Because we are in Christ and He's the King. And He's the Apostle and High Priest of our confession. And so if I'm a priest in Christ and the Bride of Christ, that makes me a royal priesthood. And also, by the way, what can a chosen race mean besides the Jewish people? Yes, they were a chosen race, but what are we? We're also a chosen race. You realize that? Whatever you were born, of course I was a Gentile dog when I was born, but whatever, whatever you were before you were saved, you know what happened? You, got, you now have a new identification. You are in Christ as a heavenly citizen. There is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no Greek, there is no Roman, there is no American, there is no Filipino, whatever it is. Whatever you used to be, in Christ you are a heavenly people. That's our chosen race. That's our chosen kind. All right. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Since we're redeemed, we can spend the rest of our time on earth telling people about our salvation, telling people about getting saved and being redeemed and becoming a people. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. See, what we used to be was nothing, but what we are now is everything in Christ. What a, what a grace provision. All right, so this is what we see here. Romans 1, 7 I think. Saints. Saints. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a simple process. Do you know how complicated it is to become a saint in the Roman church? Oh my goodness. First of all, you can't until you're dead, and then it's got to be at least five years after you're dead, and then unless the Pope gives a waiver. But then you have to have documented miracles, you've got to have testimony from an archbishop, you've got to have all these other things, or a cardinal, I forget. Anyway, and then finally they'll beatify you and they'll say, okay, you're a saint now. Because I think they just made the last Pope a saint now. I don't really follow that, but the Orthodox Church has different procedures for determining if you're a saint. They bury you and then they dig up your bones and they see if you've decayed or not. And if you haven't decayed, then they say, okay, this, this was a saint. And they start praying to you as a saint. Okay? If you ever get a chance to go to Ukraine or go to Russia or go to the, go to the Orthodox world and tour one of those Orthodox churches and go down in the catacombs. I couldn't talk Sharon into going into the catacombs. <laughs> I don't blame her. It's nasty. But you will watch pilgrims going into those catacombs and kissing the bones of the saints to, to show the utmost of their devotion. All right, well, the, the Bible says being a saint is much simpler than that. Because when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a saint by calling. Called as saints, Romans 1 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and, and repeatedly throughout the New Testament, called as saints. But our perfection is the Melchizedek priesthood in the church, the one sacrifice for all time. And in fact, when we look at these two different issues, 
we then have the Bible relate them for us and describe them in a very important way because without Christ and his bride, the Old Testament saints could never be perfected. And here's a little preview of what we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 11. But there's a statement that's made that I think is very profound in Hebrews 11.40. In Hebrews 11.40, and this is kind of a preview of where we're going to be when we finish chapter 10 and move into chapter 11. Because it's a, it's a, it's a hall of fame, if you will, of, of Old Testament saints and, and the great things that they did by faith. And yet it says... All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Every last one of them died and never saw the the messianic kingdom manifest upon this earth. Because God has provided something better for us. Notice, there's them, and then there's us. But they are not thrown away They are not replaced. They are still perfected, but they're perfected through us. (coughs) Because we're perfected. So all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Does it mean God's a liar? He can't make good on his promises? No, he will. It's just delayed. It's deferred. Because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now notice, they will be made perfect. But first it takes the body of Christ being made perfect. First it takes us and our role as the bride. This is significant. We'll have more to say on this too. But the, uh, the role of Christ as the mediator and the role as the bride as the ministers of the new covenant becomes key. That's how they get perfected is through the new covenant. <coughs> All right, verses 15 through 17 then. We have this restated. Well, didn't you say this earlier? Haven't we read this already? Yep. Again and again and again. And every time he goes back to the New Covenant, he repeats it and he builds on what he said earlier. (coughs) All right. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And... The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. (coughs) The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. We weren't the recipients of Jeremiah 31. But we do receive it as church-age believer priests. Now we have a secondary application to make. The Holy Spirit has a communication for us in addition to the communication he had for Israel when he delivered Jeremiah 31 on the New Covenant. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. 
For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So this is the passage that I mentioned earlier. It has an us versus them contrast. That the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, communicating the distinctions between us and them, and what they have to look forward to still. What they have to look forward to still is um, what's spoken of here in the New Covenant. All right? But the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. Isn't it significant that when Jesus ascended to sit at the Father's right hand, when a new dispensation was revealed on this earth, when the Holy Spirit descended and now the, the body of Christ begins its stewardship ministry in, in 33 A.D., that he then began to inspire scriptures. And he could have added a 40th Hebrew book if he wanted to. And he didn't. The next 27 books were all written in Greek. And the Greek canon was added to the Hebrew canon. So now we have completed Bibles, what we call the canon of Scripture. And we have in our Bibles the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. And it's vital for us to recognize that he never told us, throw away those Hebrew scriptures, I'm replacing them with these Greek scriptures. Right? Because that's what cults do. That's what the Quran says, throw away that, this is the new one, this is the real one. Or the Book of Mormon says, throw away those old things, keep this one, this is the new one, this is the real one. Or any cult the Watchtower Tracks, or whatever, Mary Baker Eddy and her key, you know, all this stuff. What they do is they, they try to supersede and replace what God has already revealed. The New Testament doesn't do that. The New Testament then harmonizes and blends with the Old Testament, and a heavenly people can be edified with what the earthly people were given, plus what we're given. And we put the whole counsel of the Word of God together in a way that they, they couldn't even dream of. And the reason for that is because not only do we have to be operating in our priesthood here and now, you and I have to be functioning as believer priests in the church age, we have to be operating in our spiritual gifts, we have to be functioning in local churches, we have to be operating as church age believer priests, but more than that, we're also prepared for what our future role is going to be in the millennial kingdom. And that role is going to be on behalf of the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people are going to have the, the new covenant applied to them. And it's going to be the mediator of that new covenant. Who's the mediator? Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And who are we? We're in Christ. We are the ministers of that new covenant. And so we're, we're being prepared even today, being prepared for what we're going to do in that millennial kingdom. That's why these classes become so important. All right. So the Holy Spirit communicates to us. Also testifies to us. I think that word also, that's kind of important. 
<laughs> you know, when he wrote Jeremiah 31, 31, who was he talking to? Israel. Your people. Israel. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, the Jewish people received the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31. But the Holy Spirit also testifies to us that the bride of Christ will be ministering even as Jesus is mediating the new covenant. All right. So this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. Now read through these and ask yourself, do I have this? And the answer is no. Some people try to talk themselves into it and say, well, we, we receive the new covenant because, because we have all these things already. Really? Then why did you come to church this morning to have somebody teach you something? If you're under the new covenant, then you're going to have God's law written on your heart. You're going to have his word written on your mind. And you're going to know God better than anybody else in the world. And you don't need me to teach you. Clearly the church age did not receive this promise. And uh, the law is written upon the heart, their mind, I will write them. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Well, there you go. My sins are forgiven. I, I have to have this. Stop. Okay? There's personal sins, but there's also the national sins of Israel. The national sins when they broke the Mosaic law. You and I never broke Mosaic law. But Israel did. And so they needed a mediator that could reconcile the issues of Mosaic law so that he could give them a new covenant to replace the Mosaic covenant. All right. What are the details of this talking about? The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. We don't throw away our Old Testament because we glean the spiritual application that we glean from the Old Testament to make our church age applications. So the Holy Spirit testifies to us. And, and really, uh, the, the uh, proof for this is, is undeniable as it's laid out there. Why were these things written? Why are these things in Scripture? Because the God who cannot lie puts it into writing so that it's, it's there for, for all to see. Look at it. That's what he said. That's what he meant. And uh, he put it in writing for a reason. It's a universal standard of the Word of God for us to align ourselves with for blessing or defy for, uh, for judgment. The Holy Spirit testifies to us. Don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but it should be pretty easy to prove. Romans 4, 23 and 24. What does Genesis say? Uh, Therefore it was credited to him as righteousness. Now it was for his sake only, now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, for our sake also to whom it will be credited as to those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so you have a scripture in the Old Testament such as it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That was applied to Abraham. That's an Old Testament truth. But it also applies to us. We can glean our application for this. 
we recognize and when we believe in Jesus Christ that it's reckoned to us as righteousness. That God, through imputation, takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ, credits it to our account. And, and this becomes clear. Not only because of Genesis 15, that was good for Israel, but also because of Romans, because of the New Testament, because of, of the, the Greek canon that amplifies the Hebrew canon to make clear what is our application. Similar sentiment in Romans 15, uh, 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So don't ignore the Old Testament. You can learn from it. It was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We have more for us than any saints have ever had. A Hebrew canon and a Greek canon of Scripture. Plus the Holy Spirit indwelling us to teach us the Scriptures. A unique provision there. 1 Corinthians 10. And really, uh, you got Moses and the Exodus generation. And why do we learn those Bible stories? Because that's the example for us to not imitate. <laughs> the don't do that example of Israel in the Old Testament. <coughs> I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Israel is a nation. What a common experience. What a heritage. You brought them out of Egypt, a redeemed people. Whether they were saved or not, every Jewish person was brought out of Egypt. And they were the set-apart earthly people. And they identified with Moses. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased and they were laid low in the wilderness. And I wonder, with the bride of Christ, how many is he well pleased with? Because we're a redeemed people, but how many are walking in darkness, walking after the course of this age, not being renewed by the spirit of our mind, so instead we're conformed to this age and we're just as worldly as the biggest unbelievers out there. Are we, is he well pleased with us? Now these things happen as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved, nor be idolaters as some of them were, nor act immorality, immorally as some of them did. I mean, I gotta wonder, are we the biggest fornicators this planet has ever seen? Are we the biggest, most immoral culture in the face of this world? I mean, at some point, Sodom and Gomorrah owed an apology when it comes to global perversions. These things happened to, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The church age is a unique people, the body of Christ, for which everything else was leading up to where we are now. 
The ends of the ages has come. All right, so now beyond Old Testament revelation concerning Israel comes the New Testament revelation concerning the church. And the us versus them distinction between Israel and the church. Something else that's easy to prove. Here's just a sample of verses. Take them, memorize them, learn them. Doesn't hurt to memorize them, you know. You do need to memorize Scripture. And I recommend N.A. Wojcik, and you need to memorize Scripture. And here shortly we're going to have our Colossians memory books. And uh, as we begin our Colossians series, we're going to have a Scripture memory project for the summer in encouraging parents and children and adults and everybody to memorize these verses out of Colossians. So stay tuned for that. <clears throat> but here's some easy things. You still in 1 Corinthians 10? Look down to verse 32. Give no offense either to Jews or to Gentiles or Greeks or to the church of God. Notice that there's three people groups that are mentioned there. Jews, Gentiles, and church. So how is it that Israel can be the church or the church can be Israel or we replacing them? Or it's, it's just insanity. You've got Jews and you've got Gentiles and you've got the church. And you don't want to give offense to any of them. Don't be a stumbling block. Be pleasing to the Lord. How about Galatians 3.28? I think people misread these things because they want to misread these things because they want to take Israel's blessings. Which is just sad. Our blessings are so much greater than Israel's blessings anyway. Why would I want those? And I notice while they want Israel's spiritual blessings, people aren't really in a big hurry to move over to Israel and, and claim a land grant over there or something. You, you know, they're happy to stay here but they want to have the spiritual blessings of Israel when we already have more than that anyway. Ephesians 1.3 says we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's far beyond anything the new covenant has uh, delegated for the Jewish people in Christ's coming millennial kingdom. It says in verse 27, you, uh, verse 26 says, uh, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You received a divine paternity the day you got saved. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That happened the day you got saved. Do you remember that day? Don't ever forget that day. You become a new creation. Clothe yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. All of the things that could divide humanity, racial differences, gender differences, economic differences, all the things that drive wedges between people or get some people to be resentful of other people, all that's done away with in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. See, I stopped being a Gentile when I got saved. Arnold Fruchtenbaum stopped being a Jew when he got saved. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Galatians 6.15. How do people read these verses and think the church replaced Israel? I don't know. Verse 15 says, Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision anything but a new creation. That's just another way of saying you got Jews, you got Gentiles, but now there's a new creation in the body of Christ that is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It's not A and it's not not A. Well, then what is it? Say, my whole Western thinking and the law of non contradiction is kind of struggling here. Because there's A and there's not A. Ah, but there's a new creation where both are merged into one new man. All right. Colossians 3.11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. That's our position in Christ. Christ is all and in all. The life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. That's our new life in Christ. The new covenant will not be made until after those days. The new covenant will not be made until after those days. So You know, when people try to tell me that we're in the New Covenant already, I just stop and say, really? I miss that part where the sun, moon, and stars went dark. I miss that part when the armies of the earth were surrounding Jerusalem. I miss that part when, you know, just start going through the trumpets and bowls and seals. Right? Go through the book of Revelation, because those things haven't happened yet. Since uh, Hebrews 10 is quoting Jeremiah, let's go ahead and look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's plain. You've got days are coming. And I think, I don't know, I mean, is God, is God a liar? Does God only get some of his predictions right? Is God like, Nostradamus, who was more wrong than right, but the, the three things we think he got right, we're going to give him credit for is his great predictor and whatever, and uh, we're going to ignore the 900 things he got wrong. No, God gets everything right. <coughs> so when he says days are coming, in verse 31, we pay attention to that. But he also said days are coming in verse 27. All right. I hate quitting early. When I quit early, then James docks my pay. (laughs) All right. When you're looking at Jeremiah 31, days are coming. And then you look at verse 27. Days are coming. Ah, okay. Are these the same days? Are they different days? What order do these come in? 
Because 27 and following looks bad. Let's look at those. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster. Well, I don't want any part of that. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Well, okay, that sounds better. But they come in that order. In other words, without the great tribulation, there is no millennial kingdom. That's what it takes to humble Israel. That's what it takes to drive their repentance. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And so this is Israel going through the tribulation. This is God putting an end to Jewish excuses about blaming their forefathers. No, what are you doing in your generation? Then days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. So if you're going to pay attention to the days are coming in verse 31, understand that follows the days are coming in verse 27. And without the tribulation, you don't have the millennium. House of Israel, house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. The church has no part of that. We weren't brought out of Egypt. We weren't given Mosaic law. We didn't break Mosaic law. Israel did. And since the new covenant is designed to replace the law that they broke, why would we have any part of that? That's for Israel, not for the church. And then it says in verse 33, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. After those days. The new covenant will not be made until after those days. And so when somebody tries to tell me that it's already here, like, really? Well, when did those days happen? Because we can't be here yet until after those days. And then it says, I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord. Pastor Bob's going to be out of business. I won't have to teach you about the Lord. Everyone will know in the millennial, every Jew, I'm, I'm sorry, every Jew will know. This is a covenant for the Jewish nation. That they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. This is for the Jewish people. All right. A heart-written law will be a blessing for Israel as a replacement for the stone tablet written law. We never had the stone tablets. Why would we have the heart-written law? Israel will have the heart-written law because they broke the stone tablet law. In Israel's ministry to the Gentiles. But it is not a present blessing for the church. It is not a a present blessing to the church. 
None of us has a, some kind of a omniscience supplied. We all have the Holy Spirit, but we don't have the universal knowledge of God that Israel will have in the Millennial Kingdom. And they won't, have, they won't be able to teach each other, but they will be teaching the Gentiles, all right? Now I'm over time, so now James will have to give me a bonus check, maybe. If a <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 8, I'm going to close with this. Zechariah chapter 8. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. In Zechariah 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will be yet that peoples, just call them Gentiles, will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. And so you get global carpools all getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Wow. Ten Gentiles. Ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew. Okay? Because in the millennial kingdom, that distinction between Jew and Gentile is back in operation. It's not like the church age. It's not that new creation that we are in the church. We're back to Jews and Gentiles again for the tribulation and the millennium. All right. We are not, uh, you know how we know we're not this? Because Colossians 3.16 says we're supposed to be teaching one another, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So Colossians 3.16 says the church teaches one another. The New Covenant says Israel doesn't teach one another. Israel doesn't teach one another because all of Israel knows God already. But we teach one another. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for taking us through these things. This is is a great encouragement for us. Thank you for providing a voice to get through the hour. Thank you for all your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.